Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. As you well know, the Bible talks a lot about faith. What is not often talked about is the fact that the Bible speaks of a mature faith. As a matter of fact, uh, in James, uh, he talks about uh, mature faith in chapter 2. So the question is, what does a mature faith look like? What is, I mean, faith is obviously trusting the Lord, but if that matures, what does that mature faith look like that differs from just ordinarily trusting the Lord? Well, I think that the last portion of the book of Genesis is an illustration of a man who exhibited mature faith. Matter of fact, he is listed in the book of Hebrews as an illustration of faith, and this very passage is cited as an example of his faith. So let's look at the faith of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 50, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 15. It tells us, When Joseph's brothers saw that his father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, and please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, that they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your fathers. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now let's pause right there and put this story in perspective. If you know the story of what's going on in the book of Genesis, then uh, you know that uh, Jacob had 12 sons, one of which was Joseph. The text almost seems to indicate that Joseph was his favorite. And the other brothers got jealous of that, and they sold him into slavery. This is all while they were back up in Canaan. Those slave owners took Joseph to Egypt, where he became a slave and actually ended up in prison. And this is a case where a man went from prison to prime minister. He was second in command in all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh had more power. Now, the Lord did all of that, because 
a famine was coming, and in that position, he was able not only to save the Egyptians, but to save his own family as well. That is a long, involved story, and if you've been tracking me as we've been going through the book of Genesis, you know that story. Well, when you get to the last chapter, Jacob, the father, dies. So we've gone all the way through the death and burial of Jacob. Well, what I just read picks up what happened after the father was buried back up in Canaan. And what is going on is this. The brothers sold Joseph to slavery. And perhaps they thought that the father was the restraint on him to keep him from retaliating against them. But when he dies, now what? Because he is a very powerful man in Egypt, and he could now retaliate. So that's the fear, and that's the point of verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father Jacob was dead, they said, uh-oh, we are now in trouble. Perhaps he will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil that we did to him. So the death of Jacob provoked this story. They are feeling incredibly guilty and fearful that perhaps now that their father is dead, Joseph will have free reign to come and get even with them for what they did to him. So, here is what they do. Verse 16. And they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please, Forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin that they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your fathers. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. All right. What they do is really rather simple. The text says the brothers sent messengers. Now you might note that the little word messengers is in italics. And when you see a word in italics in the New King James Version, which is the one I'm reading from, that alerts you to the fact that that word is not in the Hebrew text. So the idea is they sent to Joseph. The translators have added the word messengers, but that word is not there, so that allows commentators to start speculating as to exactly what happened. So some say that the person they sent was Benjamin. That was the brother he would have been closest to. And some say uh, they sent Benjamin and Judah. But the truth is, we don't know. Now, <clears throat> the message that they give him is, your father told us before he died that that he wanted you to forgive us. Now that just raises all kinds of questions. Really. Uh, 
did he really say that? Well, as you can imagine, uh, you read the students of this passage and some will say, no, there's, there's no record of him saying anything like that. He didn't say that. They made that up. And others say, no, uh, they're willing to admit that they sinned against him, so they probably did hear this from their father. He probably really did say this. All right, it comes down to this, that either they're telling the truth or they are deceiving him. Let's suppose for a minute they're telling the truth and Jacob really told them to go tell their brothers to for, that he wanted him to forgive his brothers. Well, why didn't they do it before he died? He told them before he died. So if it's the truth, they delayed in telling him. Or it's deception. And as I wrestle with this passage, I don't know that I was able to find anything in the text that tilted it one way or the other. But I do know this, that clearly, assuming it happened, they should have done it quicker. Uh, I mean, when there's a need for reconciliation, uh, the quicker you do it, the better. The longer it goes, the more difficult it gets. So they were actually running a risk by not doing this before. Whatever the case, they are finally saying to Joseph, look, your father said forgive us. So blame him. He's the one asking. Now they knew they wouldn't, he wouldn't turn them down. But they totally misread the situation if that was the case because we're told in verse 17, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. When they spoke to him. So several went, whoever they were, and when he heard it, he just broke down and cried. They have at least acknowledged that they sinned against him. Uh, they at least want to be reconciled. They want to be uh, forgiven. So, verse 18 says, Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, I want to explain the blank space between verses 17 and 18. You see that little white space? I'm going to tell you what happened in that white space. Verse 17 says, messengers went to see Joseph, and he wept. Verse 18 says, and all of his brothers show up. So what does that tell you? The whoever it was that gave him the message in verse 17 went back and told the brothers, and they said, okay, he wept. He's receptive. He's not going to take vengeance on us. We can go see him. That's the explanation of the blank space between verses 17 and 18. You've got to read between the lines. But clearly, that's what happened. What is fascinating is that they bow down and say, we are your servants. Wow. Do you remember one of the things that got him in trouble to begin with? way back when they were all living in Canaan, 
that he had a dream and they were bowing down and serving him? That's part of what aggravated them. This is the fulfillment of that dream. Exactly what he dreamed years before has now literally come to pass. They are bowing down before him and saying, we are your servants. So the great question is, how is he going to respond? What is he going to do? Well, look at verse 19. Then Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For I, for I, or, or for am I in the place of God? Don't worry. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to get even. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to do any of that. And his explanation is, am I in the place of God? Now, what does that mean? Well, there's several possibilities. One is that it means that I'm not in the place of God to judge you. Another possibility is I'm not in the place of God to interfere with what God has done. It's not my job. And that expression is used earlier in the book in that latter sense, which is probably the meaning here. Now, you remember how, as I'm going through Genesis, I keep saying, uh, put the story in the context of the whole book. You know how many times I've said that? Um, well, let me talk about that for a second. The book of Genesis opens with the story of Adam and Eve. After the creation, God created the world, and he created Adam and Eve. And Satan comes along and says, um, you know, if you ate that tree, you will be like God. Remember that? We are now in chapter 50. We're now at the end of the book. And here is a man who says, am I in the place of God? That what they did back in the early chapters of Genesis was think, at least Eve, think, well, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be in the place of God. And the book ends with a man who learned no, I'm not in the place of God. It is not my place to interfere with what God is doing. Then he says this. This is one of the most profound verses in all of the book of Genesis and maybe the whole Old Testament. Look at verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Wow. Would you please look at that? This is incredibly important. Joseph says, what you did to me was evil. You intended it for evil. You sold me into slavery. You threw me in a ditch. You might as well have killed me. But he said, you know, 
God meant it for good. What? That is a profound thought. Now, what's behind it? Let's unpack this verse. This is very, very important stuff. Um, behind this is the idea that God is in control of what's going on in life. God's sovereign. So whatever you do doesn't matter. Because God, matter of fact, there's a verse in the Psalms that says, even the wrath of men will praise him. He can use the anger and wrath of people for your good. What a profound thought. Now put these two things together. Just look at verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Underline the word evil and underline the word good. So that you look at what's happened to you and you say, that's wrong. That's evil. That shouldn't have happened. But if you are trusting the Lord, you can say no matter how bad the evil was, God meant it for good. Is that a mind-boggling truth or what? Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So this is a phenomenal act of faith on Joseph's part that he didn't just see the evil circumstances. He, with the eye of faith, saw the purpose of God. And what he says is, what you did to me landed me in Egypt, and because I was in Egypt, and God worked in my life to give me dreams and promotion, I ended up saving the whole nation of Egypt and all my family besides. Many people were saved. That's God put me in a place because of your wickedness. So what people do to you cannot thwart the purpose of God provided you see it from God's point of view and not theirs. What discernment. What faith. He saw what God was doing. Then it says in verse 21, Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Wow! He not only didn't retaliate, he not only didn't punish them, and by the way, who would have accused him of had he. He did the exact opposite. He said, I'm going to provide for you and all your family. And he spoke kindly to them. So instead of retaliating, he was kind. Now I say to you, that's the ultimate of the scripture. That seeing things from God's point of view and trusting him to do the good, evil, in the midst of evil. 
What a mind-boggling truth. Someone has said, each sentence in Joseph's threefold reply is the pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. To leave all the writings of one's wrong to God is the first thing. That's in verse 19. To see his providence in man's malice, that's verse 20. And to repay uh, evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. That's verse 21. And this author picks out those three things and says, that's the pinnacle of faith. That's mature faith. It's faith that can say, I'm going to let God right the wrongs. I am going to see his providence in man's malice, and I'm going to repay evil with kindness. And if you've ever been mistreated or had evil done to you, then you know that takes faith. And that's why I say this is an outstanding example of faith. This is not ordinary faith. I'm calling this, as I think the scripture does, mature faith. Mature faith. It takes mature faith to trust God when everything looks like it's against you. And you've got to trust God to bring good out of evil. Wow. A famous Dutch sculpturist went to Rome to work there because of the marble that was available there. When he prepared his work for shipping, he put hay and straw in the crates to protect his artwork. The day his work arrived, he was not at home. After uncrating the statues, his resentful servant deliberately scattered the packing material over the well-tilled garden, hoping that the seed would take root in the fertile soil and ruin it. Instead, that hay and straw contained an exotic plant native to Rome, and it sprang up. And the story that was written in 1975 said, until that day, there are some in Copenhagen, what sprung up are some of Copenhagen's most beautiful flowers. So the servants scattered the straw and scattered the hay to ruin the garden. But what he didn't know is that God used it to grow some beautiful flowers. That's the faith of Joseph. That's his discernment. He looked at the situation, and he didn't see the evil. He saw the hand of God. The rest of the passage tells us about his death. It's the second part of the passage. The first is how he treated his brothers with discernment. 
The rest of the book of Genesis tells us about his death and burial, at least his temporary burial. Now, therefore, do not be afraid, he says to them, I'll provide for you. So, verse 22, Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his, and his father's household, and Joseph was 110 years old. Uh, by the way, that seems like a long time to us, does it not? But again, if you put this story in the context of the book of Genesis, you will recall this is a relatively short time. You know, Methuselah and all those guys live hundreds of years. And so what you see in the book of Genesis is that the age decreases. Uh, matter of fact, um, Isaac lived to be 180. Jacob lived to be 147. And now Joseph lived to be 110. So in three generations, we've gone from 180 to 110. So he lived to be 110. However, he lived long enough, the next verse tells us, that he saw his grandkids. It says the third generation. They were brought up at his knees. So he lived long enough to see his grandkids. Now, the third generation, uh, most scholars say, included his, his children, and his grandchildren. So that verse is talking about his grandkids. So he at least lived long enough to see his grandkids. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from his children, the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. Now, let me explain a couple of things. In verse 24, it says, God will visit you. Uh, verse 25 says, God will surely visit you. The idea of God paying a visit uh, in the scripture is that he's coming to either bless or curse. And in this case, it is obviously he's coming to bless. But it's an interesting little word. God's going to visit. You normally think of a visit as being temporary. Uh, they don't stay long. But they come and they go. And that's sort of the idea. God is going to come, and while he's there, he's going to bless, or he's going to judge, and then he's going to leave. It's rather interesting that um, he hasn't received the promise yet. But he's saying God's going to come and he's going to do it. Matter of fact, uh, he says in verse 24, he's going to bring you out of the land to the land which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we use that term all the time. The Old Testament is the story of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the first time these three words appear together. Uh, but that's significant because God, in the book of Genesis, appears to Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob, and to those three patriarchs promises them the land of Palestine. So the idea of putting all this together is God is going to visit you in the future, and he's going to give you the land that he promised our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is an act of faith, is it not? He's believing that God is going to fulfill the promise to give his descendants the land. Now, uh, I mentioned earlier that this is a great story of faith, and the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that of this very act. So turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and look at verse 22. Acts chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, that's Genesis 50, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. So, I say Genesis 50 is talking about his faith. I think that's obvious from just reading it, but the writer to the Hebrews agrees with me, or maybe I should say I agree with the writer to the Hebrews. At any rate, clearly this is an act of faith. I am believing God's promise for the future. Now, I said this passage was divided into two parts, and it is. The first part has to do with uh, his discernment of what God was doing in his life. The second part of the passage has to do with what he believed God was going to do in the future. So in the first part of the passage, he believes God is working in his life now, and in the second part of the passage, he believes that God is going to keep his promise in the future. One commentator on this passage said, and I quote, Joseph probably could have experienced burial in a pyramid or had some other grand burial in Egypt. Like Moses, Joseph chose the promises of God over the privileges of the world. He is a model for all believers, Israelites in the past and present Christians alike. However, he wanted his family to embalm him and place his body in a coffin in Egypt. Later descendants could bury him in the promised land, which they did near Shechem. They did so in the parcel of land that his father had bought and given to him, perhaps under Abraham's oak. The expression of Joseph's faith in God's promises to his forefathers provides a fitting climax for the book of Genesis and the formative period of Israel's history. Verse 24 contains the first reference to the three patriarchs together. Wow. He believed God. He believed, I didn't get this one. 
I got the first one. I got God working good, but I didn't get the land. But God promised it, and I believe it, and I'm going to give you as a token that I believe it, I want to be buried there. So embalm me and take me back to the land, which they did. Now, they embalmed Jacob, and I said, if archaeologists could find that, wow. Well, somewhere there's the embalmed body of Joseph. Wow. I think if you found the body of Joseph, the body of Jacob, and the ark of Noah, we could have a lot of fun with the skeptics. <laughs> all right, let me sum all this up. I think what's going on here is that Joseph has exhibited what I'm calling a mature faith. The mature faith trusts the Lord to fulfill his promises in this life, under all circumstances, and in the future. Now, let me repeat that. Mature faith. Trust the Lord to fulfill his promises regardless of the circumstances in this life and to fulfill his promises in the future. So instead of murmuring and complaining and griping and being discontent, mature faith says, God's in control and I'm going to trust him. Even if what has happened is evil, God can bring good out of evil. I say that is about as profound as it gets. One commentator said, those who trust the Lord to bring about his promised blessings in his, in his own inscrutable way will demonstrate their faith through adverse circumstances of life. If believers wholeheartedly trust in the sovereignty of God, death would lose its power over them. Persecution and antagonism would fade into his sovereign plan, providing a spirit of confidence and kindness. End of quote. Wow. A simple faith trusts Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life. A simple faith trusts the Lord for the easy things. Mature faith says, I'm going to trust the Lord no matter what happens. It's the faith of Job who says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. It's the faith of the three Hebrew children who said, yeah, we'll go in the fiery furnace and God will deliver us. But if not, we'll go in the fiery furnace anyway. Because we're going to trust God to fulfill his promises regardless of the circumstances Regardless of how bad, wicked, evil, harmful, hurtful they are, we are going to trust the Lord because he has promised all things 
will work together for good. Years ago, there was a man named Samuel Brinich. He was a godly man who was an official in the Salvation Army in Boston. One day, a drunk man threw a brick at him, hitting him in the head. As a result of the injury, he was unable to preach for 18 months. It was during this time of recuperation that he began to write the articles that would form the basis of his book, Helps to Holiness. That book turned out to be his best and most useful work. His wife remarked, had there been no brick, there would have been no book. She was convinced that the Lord had allowed the tragedy so that her husband would have had time to write. She preserved the brick and printed on it the words of Genesis 50. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. If there had been no brick, there would have been no book. Father, thank you for this perspective. Grant that we may absorb it and use it. Grant that we may grow in faith to the point that we can say, no matter what happens, we're going to trust you and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.